Hello, everyone. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things related to what used to be called the Global War on Terror and what we call the Long War. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we have a very special guest, Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. They're the authors of the newly released book, Cobble which takes you through the Biden administration's deeply flawed decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and its equally disastrous execution of the withdrawal. Jerry is a former investigative reporter with the Washington Examiner and recently was hired to help lead the Afghanistan withdrawal investigation for the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Today's capacity, Jerry is speaking in his capacity of writing the book. James served as an officer in the U.S. Army and has served in Afghanistan. Uh, before we start, I highly recommend you read this book. Jerry, James, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, guys, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's a, it's a real pleasure to uh, to get you on and to discuss this really important book. It's a, it's a tour de force on the decision to the Biden administration's decision to withdraw and how how that all played out. We watched that play out on television. It was deeply frustrating to someone like me who basically saw this all coming and was powerless to, to, to stop this disaster. But before we start, uh, Jerry, James, what drove you guys to write this book? Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll let James get into, um, you know, his thoughts on that. Cause I'm, I know it's, it's personal for him, but for me, my, my brother has done multiple tours, uh, in Afghanistan as well. And, um, I of course am a longtime fan of the long war journal. And so longtime reader, first time caller, but, um, I, uh, and so, you know, this has been an issue that's been important to me and, uh, I also, I think, saw the writing on the wall, especially in 2021 when President Biden made his announcement to do a conditionalist withdrawal of, of U.S. troops in rapid fashion without clearly without any plan about how to keep the Afghan military fighting, without any plan about what to do about the Americans and Afghan allies there. And and so I, I was technically a DOJ reporter, but I sort of expanded my beat a bit in 2021, uh, telling my editors that we had to start to write about Afghanistan because this was going to fall apart in rapid fashion. And so I wrote a lot about it. And um, and obviously it all came crashing down. And James and I knew, you know, we've been friends in D.C. for years now, and we had wanted to write a book about Afghanistan for a long time. And um, 20 years of war ending in such a debacle. Um, President Biden making September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary, the withdrawal date, and that resulting in the Taliban being back in charge. The Taliban who had harbored al-Qaeda on 9-11, protected them before 9-11 and protected them for 20 years after them being back in charge on the 20th anniversary was just a crystallizing moment. And we knew that this was a book that had to be written. There's been no accountability. There's been 
nobody fired, no one resigned, no one's paid a price. And so we thought that a book like Kabul was needed and necessary. And, um, and so, you know, we just encourage everyone to read it. Yeah. To, uh, to like, just to pick up on everything that Jerry just said, um, we've been friends for a long time and we talked about Afghanistan over the years and, uh, it, it's it's kind of ironic that we're on this podcast now because uh, as we watched things kind of just start, you know, kind of marching down the the path to disaster, uh, Jerry and I would would continually uh, reference everything that uh, you know that you were highlighting on Long War Journal. But um, yeah, to be uh, to be very you know open, it. it it was a very personal um, kind of uh, mission on my end. Uh, I, uh, I had some friends that uh, you know deployed and, and didn't come home, and to to see all of it end the way that it did, with no accountability, um, was just completely unacceptable. And uh, and that's kind of how Jerry and I started the process. And uh, to, to be frank, while talking to the, the 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, Marines and, and 82nd Airborne paratroopers, uh, it, that, that kind of personal feeling of, of trying to tell the story only intensified. Uh, because uh, the stories that they told us uh, of what they endured were, were pretty horrific. And, and, and we, we felt very deeply that they needed to be told. Um, and so, so here we are. And, and thank you for giving us a, a platform. Honestly. No, well, look, thank you for writing this. It needed to be done. Uh, and it's really, I cannot, to, to those of you listening, buy this book, read this book. It's, uh, I really don't have words. It's ex- the, the, the breadth and depth of the topics covered here. It's, and look, it, this, this is what we were tracking. Tom Jocelyn and I were tracking for well over 15 years of the, the, we saw this coming. I mean, you know, I always hate when people use the term incorrectly use the term Cassandra, right? You know, we were accused of being, you know, the, the, the Cassandra of, you know, oh, we're just, we're just out there, uh, predicting doom. And, um, but the real, if you look at the mythology of that, Cassandra was given the gift of prophecy and cursed with, um, no one believing her. And that's how we felt. And I'm sure that's exactly how you you guys have felt as well watching this all go down and i mean i think you could hear it in both jerry and james voice the frustration the pain um we've all experienced knowing seeing this come down the pike and and not being able to influence decisions you know we were told that you know the adults were back in charge in washington and you know we would be acting responsibly in foreign policy and what we witnessed in Afghanistan was anything but that. Um, so let's, let's get into it. Um, Jamie, Jerry and James, they, they really hit many of the points 
uh, we made here on Generation Jihad and more, more broadly at the Lone War Journal over the last two decades. And I, I think this quote, um, I believe it was from the forward, sums up uh, my views, and, and I will, I'll, I'll speak for Tom Jocelyn as well here, quite not nicely. Uh, and, and this is in quotes, the consequences of the administration's failure in Afghanistan have not remained in Kabul. They've unleashed a dangerous new global dynamic that will be felt for some time to come. I could not agree any more with that. And, you know, Jerry and James both mentioned this, the lack of accountability, um, the fact that no one resigned, no one was fired. Have we, you know, we haven't learned the lessons of Afghanistan and are we making the same mistakes today? We'll get into that a little later. Um, sadly, we're only going to scratch the surface of, of, of the book that Jerry and James wrote. Again, it's Kabul. It, it's rich in detail and facts. It's, it's something he, we love here at Generation Jihad and at the Lone War Journal. Again, get this book, give it a read. Um, so let's get into it. Um, you know, again, it really pains me that we're only going to be able to pick out certain portions of this book. You know, we could probably do an eight-hour podcast on this and still wouldn't scratch the surface here. But we'll go right to chapter, chapter three. Uh, it's titled, How Quickly Can We Get Out? In this chapter, you lay out President Biden's thought process with respect to Afghanistan. You write, and again, I'm going to quote, despite his promise to keep an open mind, a national security official told us that Biden had committed to leaving Afghanistan regardless. And this is something I see. I warned Afghan officials that the withdrawal was happening. If President Trump was going to be was reelected, it was highly likely the U.S. was going to leave or reduce to a down to a point where the Afghan would be uh, would have a very difficult surviving. It probably would have kept a minimal force that would have done minimal but president biden wanted out of afghanistan when he was vice president back in 2011 he said after osama bin Laden, osama bin laden was killed in pakistan that um our mission has been accomplished and we need to leave i think this chapter really is a stunning indictment on on biden's afghanistan policy um cherry walk us through the administration's uh, decision-making process here did biden understand what was happening on the, the ground here? I think that President Biden was told what was happening on the ground. Uh, I don't I don't know if he understood it, but I know that he disregarded what he was being told. Um, you know, we, we lay out in the book, it's interesting, when he was running for president, President Biden would flip back and forth between his promises about Afghanistan, actually. He would, he would variously say, you know, I'm actually going to leave a you know true presence there because we have to make sure that we're able to go after isis k um and do counterterrorism and that sort of thing and then other times he would say yeah of course like we're leaving we're pulling everyone out like he would flip back and forth actually but you know we we were told by people in the know that president biden really had he, he his mind was fully made up that we were going to pull u.s troops pull them rapidly and just get out completely and you know, he he received pushback from uh, the military generals who said, if if you pull all U.S. troops, if you don't leave, you know, a small troop presence of, you know, twenty five hundred, the number was fluctuating between about twenty five hundred and thirty five hundred. If you pull all those people, this will collapse. Um, and he he didn't care 
um, I think is a big recurring theme throughout the book. And, um, you know, the, the Biden administration would later say, hey, look, you know, NATO went along with us. Um, NATO was on board. But what, what we actually reveal in the book is that NATO was telling the United States, we don't want to leave, at least not yet, because if we just if the U.S. and NATO, if we all just pull out, this will fall apart and this mission will be a total failure. And uh, Blinken actually heard that. He called it hearing it in quadraphonic sound from from NATO, basically sound blasting him from all four corners of the room saying, you you can't do this. Um, NATO was up in arms saying you can't do this. But, but um, you know, Biden just ignored what everyone was saying. And I I think part of it was he he didn't want to understand or didn't understand or didn't care about what the Taliban really wanted. Um, and you had people in the Biden administration, Zalmay Khalizad and others who was a holdover from Trump um, saying, you know, well, the Taliban isn't interested in a military conquest and there's not going to be a Taliban takeover. And, you know, the Biden administration doing these insane, like, peace government attempts, like telling the Afghans and the Taliban, why don't you just form a government where the Taliban will control half of it and the Afghan government will control half of it. And then you guys pick a president that works for both of you. It was like totally insane. And, you know, the Taliban knew that that everything that Biden was doing from his withdrawal announcement to these peace government attempts, they, they knew that this meant we were we we've won and they were even saying it um after biden made his uh withdrawal announcement they were like this is victory like we've won that's how the taliban viewed it when biden made his announcement the taliban knew that they had won that was it and it was only a matter of time and only a matter of very short period of time so anyway i'm 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 going a little bit long here but the 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 long and short of it is that what we conclude in our book, I, I think a lot of times questions get raised about President Biden's age, whether he's in control of everything that's happening in, in his White House. But when it came to Afghanistan, this was him top to bottom, start to finish. These were his orders. This was his decision. And he, he wasn't willing to listen to, to anyone else around him. And uh, by the way, everyone else around him was kind of wrong, too. I don't think that any of them fully grasped how quickly this would all collapse, which, by the way, I think that they should have realized that. But he did have people around him telling him this will be a disaster. And, and Biden just didn't care. Yeah, I think that. The, well, I don't think I know. You know, the, the initial estimate was, oh, the Afghan government won't be in peril for two years. Um. I got to tell you, I, I recall as soon as the withdrawal was announced, I, I was on, I can't remember if it was radio or television, and I predicted that the government, Afghan government would collapse by the end of the summer. And I was a little bit right, a little bit wrong. They didn't make it the five weeks before the end of the summer. It was that obvious to me. Um, how was it not obvious to multi-billion dollar, hundreds of billions of dollars, defense and intelligence services? Yeah, I agree. There were, you know, you mentioned Khalizade. Yeah. Can I yeah, go, absolutely go for it? And, and you know, not this is kind of like to show you where James and I were on this. Is um, President Biden when we closed Bag 
Pilgrim on July 2nd, which was just sort of the, that was the true death knell. I mean, closing Bagram was a terrible decision for so many reasons that we can get into, you know, yeah, we'll talk about that. That's, that's next on the, but, agenda. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, president Biden gave, uh, remarks that I think that day or like right after it was about July 2nd, when he, he gave, uh, you know, remarks, he was trying to tout the economy and all this different stuff, July 4th weekend. And, um, you know, he was getting asked about Afghanistan and, you know, it was just like, well, I just want to talk about, you know, happy things, man. I don't, you know, happy things. And it's July, it's July 4th weekend. I just want to talk about happy things, you know, July 4th anniversary. And I, I tweeted, you know, I wonder if Biden's going to use this, you know, no talking about bad things in Afghanistan excuse on big anniversaries when the Taliban is ruling Afghanistan on 9-11, which was the date that he had set for the withdrawal. So like even James and I were like predicting like the Taliban's going to be in charge. Like the date that you set for the U.S. withdrawal, the for the final U.S. troops to be gone, that, that is when the Taliban is going to be running the country. So there you go. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, that officials were respond, you know, were wrong as well. Khalizade, you mentioned, you know, how he thought the Taliban would share power. I could go back. I read Taliban propaganda daily on Voice of Jihad, but, um, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly, in a strange way. But the, you know, you didn't need to read Dari, Pashtu, Urdu, or, or Farsi, which they published in all of those languages. Uh, they wrote it in English. And, they said we didn't, and this was in 2016. Um, I remember writing this up and one of their, I'll paraphrase, they, they basically said, we didn't sacrifice the blood of our fighters, of our leaders to share in some silly minister, in ministerial post within the government. The Taliban was very clear and their actions matched their words. And you know, Calizade, he's what, you know, he is one, you know, he's been on my target list for this. I testified alongside Congress with him in 2016. And he was clear that pa Pakistan's backing of the, the Afghan Taliban and the Afghan Taliban Al Qaeda relation, relationship, how strong it was. And then turned around in within a year and a half after he became the, uh, what it loses the title, the special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation. And, and when you testify to Congress, you you're under oath. How did he do a 180 and say, Oh, Pakistan's our friend They're, They want peace in Afghanistan. Uh, the, ta the Taliban are breaking ties with Al Qaeda. We can trust them. They'll participate in the government. You know, the, and you know, another thing I found ironic and I'll, I'll, I want to hear you, what you guys have to say. Um, is you know this this entire process it it was he Calizade himself never explained how he made that rapid shift and it Biden trashed Trump's deal with the Taliban and yet executed it and kept Calizade the the architect of that deal on board and we've never had an explanation for any of that. Jerry, is there, uh, I'm sorry, James, is there anything you want to add to, to what we just discussed here? Yeah. Yeah. I've just, uh, to your point about keeping, you know, Zal in charge, uh, 
you know, Anthony Blinken said that, you know, he praised Zhao's vital work uh, in, you know, creating the Doha agreements and, uh, and which is just incomprehensible, uh, number one, but um, especially when his boss was trashing that deal, that just made no sense. Well, that's yeah, that's the, the bizarre point, right? Because Joe Biden also said that like Doha or no Doha, I would have done this anyway. And and so, you know, that that's where kind of you see some dishonesty in terms of now that everything turned out poorly, they'll say, oh, well, you know, our hands were tied. But uh, yeah, to your point about Zell, you know, we we definitely, um, you know, we, we lay the facts out and and kind of, uh, you know, they, they fall where they do. Uh, we we don't try and get inside of his head, but at the same time, uh, you know, there were there were some things that that people raised. Yeah, you know, people again, as Jerry would say, were in the know. Um, raised with us that, that were just just absolutely bizarre and kind of incomprehensible. And uh, one of those was a, uh, a CIA, um, yeah, like relatively senior CIA individual who you know, told us that uh, you know, Zhao was asking if we could share information about our raids on Al Qaeda and ISIS with the Taliban beforehand. And you know, he said, "Well, what's what's the harm? They're 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 two different organizations." And uh, yeah, the response from the you know, professionals was, "Well, that's how you get dead Americans." Um, and I think that just kind of sums up just the the absolute naivete and and amateurism of this entire patrol. Well, you anticipated my next question there, so. How did the administration assess the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship? If we we go, we can go back pre-administration, uh, pre-Biden administration, under the Trump administration. You had um, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo say that the Taliban would quote after the deal, the Doha agreement was signed, would quote destroy Al Qaeda end quote. Like he actually said that. Did. The did President Biden did members of the administration buy into this idea that the Taliban could be a? I believe this term was used uh, was attributed to a general that they could be our our partners in Afghanistan. Look, uh, the the way that the Biden administration generally dealt with this was by just trying to dodge the whole issue. Uh, by essentially, I mean, President Biden would even say that Al Qaeda is gone from Afghanistan, um, basically just trying to ignore the problem of the Taliban and Al Qaeda relationship entirely. Um, and this was this was so dishonest for so many reasons because, you know, well, as the Long War Journal pointed out, and as we all knew, the the U.S. was still the U.S. and Afghan forces were still killing members of al-Qaeda after the Doha agreements, before Biden's uh, withdrawal announcement, after Biden's withdrawal announcement. I mean, al-Qaeda is obviously still in the country if you're still killing them. Um, but the Biden administration just tried to tried to dodge this. Um, and 
the problem with that is that the alliance between the Taliban and Al Qaeda never never broke. And frankly, the Taliban were willing to spend two decades out in the hinterlands um, rather than break that alliance. They were they were they were willing to spend twenty years out in the cold and out of power rather than break the alliance that they had with Al Qaeda. The the other issue with this is that I think that it is fair to say that before 9-11, there was a there was a big distinction between the, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But as the 20 years of war progressed, the Taliban integrated not just like Al-Qaeda tactics and suicide bombing and, and that sort of thing, but they integrated Al-Qaeda fighters and Taliban members joined Al-Qaeda as well. And Right now in the in the in the in the Taliban government, you have members of the Taliban government that are also essentially members of Al Qaeda as well. And that's to say nothing of Sirajuddin Haqqani, who, when Biden made his announcement, was the head of the Haqqani network, was a very top leader of the Taliban, and now today is one of the most powerful members of the Taliban government. And by a lot of very smart national security people, I mean, he's considered to be a member of Al-Qaeda himself. And so this, this fiction of Al-Qaeda somehow being gone or the Taliban's going to help us with Al-Qaeda, I mean, in some ways, members of the Taliban are also members of Al-Qaeda, and that's including members of the Taliban that are now running the country. Yeah, I mean, just jump in, like, go figure that Sirajuddin was hosting Ayman Elza over here, right? You know, it, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, look, it just, uh, I'm sure everyone listening knows Sirajuddin Haqqani, deputy, one of two deputy emirs of the Taliban, his father, Jalaluddin Haqqani, shelter, and, and sheltered uh, Al-Qaeda as they fled Afghanistan. He's also the interior ministry in the Taliban's government. People try to make a distinction. Well, the Haqqanis aren't Taliban, except the Taliban themselves denied this. Um, always said, and, and the Haqqanis always said they were one in the same. Um, again, the, this isn't something, you know, attributed. They issued statements saying that they were the same. Uh, I remember reporting, I can't remember what year it was. The time has just really gotten past me, but at some point I reported based on some very um, well-placed sources that, you know, Sirajun Haqqani was sitting on Al-Qaeda's executive shura. I mean, clearly his connections with Al-Qaeda are significant. Um, you know, it's funny that he added the, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda, Biden added Al-Qaeda is gone. I always called them the D words. We had to add one G word. Al-Qaeda was done decimated defeated degraded um all of those words we kept reading that you know you go back and you could see those words being used from 2010 onward and they were so done that um zawahiri was sheltering in kabul in a Haqqani safe house in 2020 and now the un is reporting that al-qaeda is running training camps in six different provinces training in one of them training suicide bombers for the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan safe houses by the way uh, and this information tracks what I can see publicly 
Um, it, we've, we've reported on this at the Longmore Journal. And, um, and my friend and uh, colleague, Edmund Fitton Brown, who I know you guys quoted in the book. That's glad you guys got in touch with Edmund. He's fantastic. Uh, he's the former head of the United Nations Analytical Support and Sanctions and Monitoring Team. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, we've detailed the, this relationship and to say that Al Qaeda is gone. He, he said this, what, just a couple of weeks ago, President Biden said this. And, you know, I just feel like we're constantly being gaslighted by the administration on what Al Qaeda is in Afghanistan. And, and, you know, you brought up the Haqqani thing and I, I guess we can just jump around here maybe a little bit, but, you know, the, the Biden administration, another lie that they were telling, besides this lie about Al-Qaeda being gone, was they were trying to make this distinction that you mentioned between the Haqqanis and the Taliban. Because when the United States was reduced to just controlling an airport uh, with the Taliban controlling the entire country in August 2021, and we're trying to do an evacuation and we're relying on the Taliban to provide security at the airport. The question gets raised, well, are we coordinating with the Haqqanis, who, you know, we consider this terrorist organization? And the Biden administration's response, the State Department specifically, was that, well, the Haqqanis and the Taliban are separate entities. This is what they kept telling me. And we're only working with the Taliban, not the Haqqanis. So this is crazy for two reasons. The first is to try to make this distinction is completely insane because the Taliban and the Haqqanis, although, you know, we can talk as much as we want about, you know, some of the differences and that sort of thing. But the Haqqanis are clearly part of the Taliban. Uh, they were they were key parts of the Taliban's conquering of Afghanistan. And now they're key members of the Taliban government. So this is an insane distinction to make. But on top of it. We weren't just working with the non-Haqqani Taliban. The Haqqani, the Haqqanis themselves were the ones who were in charge of airport security. And we detail this deeply in Kabul that the, the Haqqanis controlled everything surrounding the airport. One member of the Haqqani network, one Haqqani leader said that the, the first thing that we did when we showed up is we surrounded the airport with a thousand suicide bombers. The Badri 313 were kitted out in American uniforms patrolling the Kabul airport. So this idea of distinguishing between the Haqqanis and the Taliban was ridiculous. But on top of it, it was the Haqqanis who were making decisions about who gets into the airport and who doesn't. That they were the power players at Kabul airport. And that is who we were relying on, not just to get Americans and Afghan allies out, but also relying on to make sure that ISIS-K didn't hit us. And of course, ISIS-K did. Yeah, just to, to really quickly, just to add on to that. Um, yeah, from, from talking to the, the men and women on the ground uh, and, and also some of the kind of more senior leaders, uh, the the three one three that were outside of Abbey Gate were the by far the most aggressive out of all of the Taliban units, um, you know that were you know 
quote unquote, pulling out our security, I guess, if you will. Um, and, uh, and they seemed, you know, based on, on what, uh, you know, the, the, the guys on the ground told us, they seemed to really relish in the fact that they could, um, you know, execute Afghan allies in, in full sight of, of American Marines and troops, uh, you know, kind of with impunity. And these were the businesslike and professional Taliban that the Biden administration kept referring to. And it was it was it was largely that Connie's running the show. And, they, you know, the, the Taliban at Kabul airport were they would turn Americans away. They would sometimes beat Americans. They were turning our Afghan allies away, beating Afghans. And like James said, even executing Afghans in sight of the Marine snipers in the tower. Um, so this is who we were relying on. And I, I think that that's why the Biden administration was trying to muddy the waters here, calling them businesslike and professional, trying to deny that we had in, any interactions with the Haqqanis when just none of that was true. We were relying on the Haqqani Taliban at the end of a 20-year war, the Haqqanis who had with the help of Al-Qaeda, perfected suicide attacks and had used it effectively against uh, Americans and the Afghan government for years. Um, suicide attacks and IEDs. And this was a hallmark of Al-Qaeda and was adopted effectively by the Haqqanis. And then that's who we were relying on at the end of our 20-year war. And so, you know, that's just one more way that the Biden administration, even into the final days of all of this, was was just lying to the American people about what was happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, the Badri 313 is what the Taliban, one of the units the Taliban described as their special forces. Uh, look, I've watched train uh, video after video of them in their training camps. These are, as you noted, got they had suicide teams. This is this is the about the worst of the worst. There's other Taliban factions that also uh conducted suicide operations and ran camps. But, you know, the Haqqanis were certainly at the forefront of this and to to for the administration to tell us that the there was a difference between the Haqqanis and the Taliban. Absolutely insane. And just one more tidbit on the Haqqani relationship with the Taliban. When the Taliban played um, Weekend at Bernie's with Mullah Omar's corpse back from 2013 to 2015, Mullah Omar died in 2013. The Taliban pretended he was alive until they were called out on it. Who there was a this was the one point where the Taliban were disintegrating. Uh, Mullah Yakub and his his uncle Mullah Yakub is of course the son of Mullah Omar. They broke they they left the Taliban as well as other prominent Taliban factions. Um, who put the Taliban who put the band back together? It was the Haqqanis. Sarah Juden. And his father, Jalaluddin Haqqani, played an instrumental role in reassembling the Taliban, and they were rewarded for it. That's how, you know, that's how influential they are within the Taliban as kingmakers and peacemakers. And to pretend that the Haqqanis weren't a part, aren't and weren't part of the Taliban, it's absolute madness. Um, all right, well, I, I'm, let's we're going to move on to, to the Bagram chapter. Uh, again, this is Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and today we're joined by Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. They're the authors of the must-read book, Kabul, uh, 
go out and get a copy folks this is it's a great read you might need to buy a bottle of liquor to to you help you get through it because it's both fascinating and depressing at the same same uh, time i i just can't recommend i can't recommend it enough and i'll admit something here I've wanted to write a book on Afghanistan, but the the prospects of writing a book while trying to keep up on what's happening in the world. And, you know, we, we don't just cover Afghanistan at the Long War Journal. There's so much more that we do. Um, it's terrifying to me. So the fact that Jerry and James did the work for me. Thanks, guys. Can't thank you enough. It's it really is a well detailed book. And again, you should go out and buy it. So um, on to on to the, the Bagram chapter. This is. Uh, it's a stinging indictment on the administration's lack of tactical and strategic thinking. This one sentence stuck out to me. Um, and, you know, it talks about, you know, this is a theme. There is no responsibility. Um, the administration just wanted to leave Afghanistan. And here, uh, there's a portion of the sentence here, quote, plan or no plan, the Pentagon would not be dissuaded from its swift retrograde even amid a Taliban takeover, saying it had to follow Biden's orders. Nobody within the, the U.S. military, within the leadership, would stand up and say, what we're doing here is a disaster. I can't in good faith execute this these orders, and I'm going to resign. Um, you know, you had General McKenzie come out after all, you know, as he was leaving uh, his position at CENTCOM saying, well, I saw it coming. Well, why didn't why didn't you stand up and resign in protest if you saw this coming? You know, you I hate to, you know, go down to to, you know, some of the tactical decisions leaving Bagram and and planning the evacuation from Kabul International Airport. Anyone who's been to Kabul and James, I know you can you can speak to this. It's in the city. It's not like an airport here, most airports are in the United States where it's 10 miles, eight miles outside the city, remote area. It's it's like a two, three kilometer walk from the gates of the airport to the to the center of the city. If you were if with things were going bad, you had to deal with the city. You needed to keep Bagram open as a re remote location. But instead, these generals, uh, somebody needed to 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 you know stand up to this. Instead, they saluted. They carried out the orders. Um, James, uh, this question's for you. The administration and the military, they clearly misled the American public about the size and strength of the Afghan military. I also argue they underestimated the strength of the Taliban's military. Um, you know, I mentioned I, I would follow, I would watch the, these training camp videos. And I was mocked by people in the military. I would explain how, look, you know, look, the Taliban gear, the they're they're equipped. They're in uniform. They're executing drills, and you know the things I would you know, they're trying to professionalize their military people, and and people in the military would be like, oh, that's Mickey Mouse. And and my return argument was, look, they're not doing this to fight us. They're doing this to 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 fight the Afghan military. Like you know, the the Taliban was being Afghan good enough, and I think we all saw that they were Afghan good enough. Um. So, how and why did Biden and General Milley and, and, and others so badly assessed the capabilities of the Afghan military. And, and did they understand how they, they pulled the rug out from the Afghan military?
by conducting this uh, snap withdraw and they, they took away all of the in combat enablers that we built an Afghan military for the, how we, 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 you know, you understand what I'm saying. Well, I mean, there, there, there's kind of a lot there that I want to get to. Uh, first, just your previous comment. It's, it's funny that, uh, you know, you mentioned writing a book about Afghanistan because literally yesterday, Jerry and I were, um, we were chatting before we came on here and Jerry was like, I mean, he should be writing the book about this. <laughs> so it's my uh, fear. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, but but to, to your point, I mean, uh, yeah, kind of taking things one at a time. It, it the idea of trying to, um, and, and I'll get to the the the, the kind of force structure um, and the, the misleading statements about that in a second. But just just to reiterate the listeners. HKIA, uh, Hamid Kazai International Airport, is a basically a, a single strip, I mean, a, a dual strip, but really a single strip um, airfield in the middle of a dense urban area with high ground on either, like on all sides. It is, is the least defensible position that you could possibly ever choose for, uh, you know, not not just any evacuation, but but especially an evacuation where you're trying to get tens of thousands of unarmed civilians out. Um, and you know, one of the interesting things that we came across when we were uh, you know, researching and, and writing Kabul was that the Obama administration actually conducted a feasibility analysis of what a uh, an evacuation out of HKIA would look like if you abandoned Bagram. And they concluded that it was it was simply impossible. Um, and, and, you know, Joe Biden was vice president then. And now, you know, if you fast forward 8, 10, 12 years, here's, here's Joe Biden saying, yeah, that, that's what we're going to do. Um, so it was just, it, it's impossible to explain, provide a rational explanation for it. Because it just wasn't a rational decision, but uh, to, to your your main question about the the strength of the Afghan military, uh, that that was something that that Jerry and I covered a whole lot in Kabul, because you know completely down the line from you know President Biden when he was uh, you know giving his speech in April of 2021, saying there as equipped and strong as any military there is, um, the 300,000 strong, to General Milley saying that to Congress, uh, it just, it was flat out not true. Um, and and they, they knew it wasn't true because we are aware of studies that the military, the Pentagon um, commissioned a few years prior to the withdrawal uh, that said exactly that, that they, they weren't at that manpower and nowhere close to it. Um, but the way that they they goosed those numbers uh, was, first of all, they, they counted the Afghan border police and the Afghan local police. And, uh, you know, having dealt with both of those outfits, <laughs> I can tell you they're not, uh, you know, anywhere close to, uh, you know, military level. Um, 
but but they included those in their you know three hundred thousand figure, uh, which would you know it's kind of like saying the U.S. military has eight million people because we're counting police from Peoria, Illinois. It just it just doesn't it makes no sense. Um, but then secondly, there was this this whole widely known issue of ghost units where um you know there were there were entire units battalions specifically that existed on paper and nowhere else um so that certain afghan you know battalion commanders or gen, you know division commanders or, or what have you could just pocket the salaries for it. uh and that that has been a known phenomenon for a long time yeah the special investigator general for afghan police concerns reconstruction or cigar. I mean, this was publicly available information, you know, and, and it's, it's just, was all out there. It's crazy. Yeah. It, it's, 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 you know, saying, and, and the last thing that I'll add is that they continue to stick by the 300,000 number while the Taliban onslaught was progressing across the country and obviously degrading those, those Afghan units and, you know, causing a lot of a lot of them to desert or, you know, a lot of casualties. So it just, it's impossible based on what, what kind of Jerry and I read. And I, I know what, what, you know, um, what, what we were reading the book, like writing the book, it, it was impossible for us to conclude that the 300,000 figure was a good faith statement. It wasn't. And all that I would add to that is the the reason why this we spend so much time in the book on this three hundred thousand figure lie is that this is the this is another lie that the Biden administration was trying to sell to sort of explain why what we were doing was some sort of good idea. Like, how could a three hundred thousand strong army that's Biden would say is like bigger than NATO armies and all this different stuff. They can't lose to the Taliban. And it's like, it's just, well, it's just not true though. Right. And on top of this number being wrong for all of the reasons that James just explained so eloquently, but we also pulled everything that the Afghan military needed to have some sort of chance to continue fighting because the U.S. military retrograde meant pulling U.S. contractors, U.S. logistics, U.S. advisors, U.S. ISR, every, all of the things that, by the way, the United States had designed the Afghan military around. And so, you know, one, one person compared it to basically just pulling pieces out of the Jenga pile haphazardly until it fell, right? And this was another thing that was just known. I mean, everybody knew that this is how we had built the Afghan military to function. And that if you immediately pulled all of the things that they were designed around, they would fail. And it was already, you know, obviously an, a, a very shaky Afghan military to say the least. And then you pull everything that they need to fight, but then you also just tell the American people some wild inflated number. It's clear that the Biden administration was just was just was just lying about this because they wanted to sugarcoat what they had done. And I'm not sure why they thought that this lie would work. Well, maybe it did, right? Because no one's been held accountable. 
Um, but it was a crazy lie, one of many. One of many indeed. And, you know, look, I think this all stems. Once the decision was made to withdraw, and it was made back in under the Obama administration, the Trump administration sought to withdraw from Afghanistan. Once the policy, and this is what I find in my years of working in Washington, fortunately not living in Washington, D.C., is that what often happens in situations like these is policy trumps the facts. So the desired policy is let's leave Afghanistan. Well, how can we? So okay, fine. So we're going to leave Afghanistan. Um, there's a there's a whole other second and third order problems that arise from this, like the U.S. military thinking about leaving as opposed to actually accomplishing a mission there. But but how do we leave Afghanistan? Um, well, we can't leave Afghanistan if the Taliban and Al Qaeda relationship is still strong. So we'll manipulate the facts to say that they're not strong. We can't leave Afghanistan if the Taliban is going to overrun the Afghan military as we're walking out the door. So we'll tell ourselves that the Afghan military is strong. We can't leave Afghanistan if the Taliban uh, isn't going to cooperate with the Afghan government and, and form an inclusive government. So we'll just pretend that they're doing and this. Is, I could go on and on. The, the Taliban can't be extreme they have to be moderate so we'll pretend the taliban's moderate even though that all the facts tell us something quite different and i think that's a lot of what we experienced here i think this administration thought you know look i i go back to that you know there was an estimate that you know and we saw we watched it change as things developed two years the, the afghan government has then it became one year and then it became six months and then it became three months and then it was a one month and then it was weeks, right? As, as it became obvious what was happening. I think this administration thought they had a decent, you know, Vietnam decent interval that they could walk out of Afghanistan. Something would be left. And then, you know, if it all collapsed, they could just blame the Afghan, which Biden, by the way, did, which was one of the most disgraceful, probably the most, it was the only time I was ever shamed to be an American when he stood up there and said the Afghan military wouldn't fight when what, 60, 70,000 Afghan soldiers and police died and how many tens of thousands were wounded horrifically. Um, yeah, it's, it was, you know, these are the lies that were told in order to, for us to get out of Afghanistan. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and just to your point, I'll, I'll let Jerry kind of fill in specifics on this. Uh, but that's, it's, I mean, Everything you just said is entirely correct. And, and the only people that have had a more professional assessment were um, some of the intelligence agencies who uh, you know, who wargamed out what things would look like in different scenarios. And, and for them, that the handwriting was on the wall just you know, explicitly. Um, and so I'll... I'll I'll kick that one to Jerry in a second. Um, but um, to, to, to the rest of everything that you just said, that, that's that's exactly it. It was it was top down. It was we're going to make a decision about what what the end state is going to be, which is we're getting out of Afghanistan and everything else will follow from that. And one example um, that yeah, I just think off, off the top of my head from Kabul is the uh, acting ambassador, the, the charge d'affaire, you know, probably pronouncing that correctly, um, 
you know, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, you would you would say, uh, you know, we're keeping an embassy here, even if you know the Taliban takes over, and and military officials basically were like, you know, what are you, you know, um, and 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 you know, the answer was, you know, that's that's what the president wants. So I'm maniacal about doing that, and that just in, in a nutshell kind of encapsulates uh, this whole you know, magical thinking aspect of all of it. But but I'll kick it to Jerry for the specifics about And Jerry, yeah, Jerry, before you jump, we call this wish casting. Um, they wish that they could keep an embassy. We wish the Taliban would join an inclusive government. We wish, you know, what you wish for and what actually happens, well, those are two different things. Yeah, it, yeah, it is completely wishful thinking and and by the way so you know we 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 later heard that uh you know generals testifying that some of the predictions were oh okay well maybe the afghan government will will last until september october november this is what we we ended up hearing and one thing that i would just point out is that if it is true that at a certain point, we were predicting that the Afghan government would only last, you know, into the fall. At no point did the Biden administration put together a plan that could have gotten out the tens of thousands of Afghan allies that we had made promises to, even within that time period. And there was no plan put in place that would have been able to get Americans out in that time period either. So even if it is true that, you know, we were predicting end of 2021 or something like that, there was no plan to fulfill the basic promises that we had made. Uh, so it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. And honestly, um, a, a total dereliction of duty to the people that had helped American service members for 20 years. Um, and to Americans. And, and and just one other point before we move on is painting this rosy picture of a 300,000 strong Afghan army and it's not going to be like Saigon and uh, there's not going to be a, t- a takeover of Afghanistan like the Vietnamese did. These are all things that people like President Joe Biden were saying. You know, these, these lies, I think, did play a part in why so many Americans were still hanging around in Afghanistan in 2021. Um, you know, these lies had consequences. Absolutely. could I could not agree with you more. I mean, either they knew that this was going to happen and they didn't care or they didn't know. And neither is good. Neither is comforting. Um, one is, as you said, a dereliction of duty and the other is ignorance. Um, neither are acceptable. And this is why there needed to be um, consequences for these decisions. And again, no one's paid paid a price for it. And, uh, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but, you know, how does this play out in the future? That's my big concern. The We'll, we're going to move on to the, the, again, so much in this book I'd love to cover here. Next chapter, uh, we'll talk about Known Wolf. It's it's a fascinating, frustrating, infuriating read. 
in the trap in this chapter, Jerry, uh, James, you guys detail the events that lead up to the horrific suicide attack at Abbey Gate uh, at the airport where 13 U.S. troops and 170 Afghan civilians uh, were desperately trying to get out of the country were killed in a suicide attack that was uh, executed by the Islamic State's Khorasan province. Um, I'll I'll read a a quote here from from the book. Quote, all available information indicates that U.S. officials knew that an ISIS-K Islamic State attack was coming and the military and the CIA had been tracking a potential ISIS attack on the airport since August 19th. End quote. There's a ton to unpack here. This chapter is just, again, I'm not sure if it's more fascinating, frustrating, or infuriating, or all of those things equally. But the what interests what interests me most here is the the fact that the Taliban, um, we know as we talked about earlier, Badri three one three, which is of course the Haqqani's special forces unit, was was providing security, and we put that word in quotes for the airport. Um, the Biden administration claims that there's no evidence of collusion between the Taliban and the Islamic State, um, which executed that attack. And you, you discussed the possibility and use this word and these two words in quote, tactical accommodation between the Taliban and the Islamic State. Um, this is, a, this is, was something I suspected immediately after it was executed. I'm going to tell you this. Badri 313 knows what a suicide bomber looks like and they know who was in Bagram. Um, and, you know, you guys get in the detail. Tell, tell us more about this. Uh, I'm not sure who wants to take this first, James, Jerry. I'll, I'll, kick, I'll kick it to Jerry yeah. for a second. And I, I can follow up after. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we, we make the point in our book about is that I, I think that it's, it's just the fact that the, the attack at Abigate did did not have to happen. One important piece of that, that perhaps many of your listeners know, but I know most people don't, is that this suicide bomber, this ISIS-K member, his name is Abdul Rahman Al-Ghari, and he was captured um, back in 2017 through a joint operation between Indian intelligence and the CIA, stopped him from carrying out a suicide attack in New Delhi and he was handed over to the United States and he was in prison at Bagram and he was in prison at Bagram uh, in early July, 2021 when the U S abandoned Bagram and he was still in prison until the Taliban took Bagram. And the first thing that the Taliban did when they took Bagram was they opened the doors, to the prisons at Bagram and the Taliban knew that there were thousands of members of ISIS-K behind bars there, as well as dozens of members of Al-Qaeda and thousands of Taliban fighters as well. And they opened the doors and let those terrorists out. Um, and among them was Abdul Rahman Al-Ghari, who ended up then just about a week and a half later <clears throat> killing 13 Americans at Abbey Gate. And so, you know, this is the business-like and professional Taliban that we relied on for security. Um, and But their first act was to let all these ISIS-K fighters out. And President Biden, um, throughout that August time frame, while we're relying on the Taliban for security, would continually talk about how the Taliban and 
ISIS-K are mortal enemies, with the implication being that, you know, we can count on the Taliban to stop ISIS-K from hitting us because they're mortal enemies with each other. And there is a lot of truth, actually, to them being enemies. Um, You know, they fight each other in Afghanistan quite a bit. But they, one, had a bigger enemy uh, in front of them, which was the retreating American military and fleeing American citizens. And two, uh, the Taliban and ISIS-K, specifically the Haqqani Taliban and ISIS-K, actually had a history, a years-long history in Afghanistan of collaborating on attacks, especially in Kabul, where the <clears throat> Haqqanis would facilitate ISIS-K in conducting some of these more egregious suicide-style attacks that would, you know, target Americans, target the Afghan government, and target Afghan civilians in real dramatic fashion, where the Haqqanis were, were more than willing to help facilitate ISIS-K carrying these out these attacks and let ISIS-K claim credit for them. Um, because, you know, there's some things that the Taliban didn't really want to bear responsibility for. And so there's a, there's a history of that. The, the, the Haqqani Taliban also uh, helped cultivate ISIS-K um, in Afghanistan as it was, as it was getting its start. <clears throat> and Sirajan and Haqqani himself played a role in that. On top of that, <clears throat> the leader of ISIS-K <clears throat> at the time of the Abigate attack, Ghaffari, also known as al-Muhajir, he himself had been a former mid-level Haqqani commander before joining ISIS-K and had very close relationships with other members of the Haqqani Taliban who were part of those Kabul attack networks striking the U.S. and the Afghan government. And two of those uh, former compatriots of the head of ISIS-K are currently high-level members of the Taliban government. One of them is the deputy uh, leader of the Taliban's intelligence, and the other is the governor of Kabul province now. And so all of these things put together, and you have a much more complicated picture of what was going on when we were relying on the Haqqanis to provide security to defend us against an ISIS-K attack. Because Yes, they're enemies, the Taliban and ISIS-K, but they also work together because it's Afghanistan and things are more complicated than just these two guys don't like each other so we can count on one to fight the other. Um, It's not like that. And we, I think, make a very strong case that at the very least, collusion was a possibility, if not a likelihood for that attack, a collusion specifically between the Haqqanis who were in charge of security at Kabul airport and ISIS-K, thousands of whom the Taliban had just freed from Bagram. I mean, it was the ultimate, if, if true, right? It's the ultimate plausible deniability for the Taliban to humiliate the United States as it's on its way out the door. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you there. James. Yeah, no, no, I was just... 
it, it kind of exactly to your point. Um, what what are the uh, individuals that we quote in, in in Kabul is the it's a the Tajik American interpreter who served for you know almost almost throughout the entire uh, and uh, he was talking to the Pentagon investigators and they were asking him afterwards during the Abbey Gate investigation you know. Uh, what do you what do you think about all of this? And um, yeah, this is someone who, by, by the way, passes as, as Pashtu also. So basically, was able to just completely kind of integrate into uh, all you know different factions of uh, of Afghan society. But but more to the point, what he said was, uh, is it yeah, you know, th- these are the Haqqanis outside this gate. And they're they're young, they're aggressive, they really hate America. And they, you know, have no desire to be told what to do by, you know, you know, Taliban Inc., if, you, if that's what you're going to call it, you know, kind of the, the, the Kandahar Taliban type of, of um, you know, leadership. And what what he told investigators was that from his perspective it was virtually inconceivable that uh, someone could get through you know get past those types of fighters who are trained to recognize and wear and use suicide vests uh, without there being any uh you know without anyone kind of raising an eyebrow um, but also, uh, yeah, he, he kind of just pointed out that there was, uh, you know, very clear overlap between that specific brigade and uh, known ISIS operators or operatives in Kabul. Uh, so I, again, you take that for what it's worth, but you know, somebody who's been there for for nineteen years probably has a pretty good read on what's going on on the ground. And and one thing to add to that is that despite testimony like that from, from that interpreter who was interacting with all of the different Taliban leaders, including the Haqqani commanders um, at Kabul airport, and on top of everything that we've just talked about, about this relationship between the Haqqani network and ISIS-K, in the, in the Pentagon's official conclusion report, the word Haqqani does not appear anywhere. Amazing, right? I mean, just yet another whitewashing of the of the failure in Afghanistan. Uh, just, it's it's incredible. Everyone knew it was Bajari 313. They advertised it. And everyone, anyone who understood what Bajari 313 knows it's Haqqani, and yet you can't mention it in the report. Absolutely stunning. Um, <laughs> Just, just again, I'll, I'll just maybe I'll maybe I'll just conclude with frustrating. Uh, again, this is Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and our guest today, Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan, authors of the must-read book Kabul, which details the disastrous decision to withdraw from from Afghanistan and and the aftermath. Um, we're gonna our last topic. We'll touch on um, the your chapter from Kabul to Kiev. Um, 
this really does touch on some ideas that have concerned me since the, the U.S. withdrawal. Um, and the fact that, again, there's been no accountability. I don't believe there's been any lessons learned from this. It, it was very clear to me at the time and afterwards that the Russians were emboldened to invade Ukraine after they, they witnessed the uh, failure of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. So has the Biden administration learned any lessons from Afghanistan? Has the administration made some of the same mistakes that it made in Afghanistan? Is, is it making them today in um Ukraine, mistakes like wish casting, overestimating the strength of our allies and underestimating the strength of our enemies, et cetera, et cetera. Is this happening today in Ukraine, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let, uh, I'll, I'll kick this to, to Jerry in a second. But uh, my first thought when you asked that question was, uh, no, they didn't learn anything. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is that, uh, yeah. They basically made the same mistake, um, you know, in, in kind of like an inverse way. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, go like in Afghanistan, they they underestimated the Taliban, and they overestimated, you know, to the extent they're being honest, overestimated the strength of the the Afghan military, and uh, you know. You know, and because of that, we had all kinds of equipment left behind, you know, everything that everyone knows about. Uh, I'm sure if you're a listener of this podcast. Um, but then the Ukraine, they, they did the exact opposite. Um, they, they kind of just flipped it around and said, okay, well, we'll you know, we quote unquote learned our lesson. Um, and they underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian military and they overestimated the strength of the Russian uh, military. And for that reason, didn't provide a lot of arms up front because they thought they were going to get confiscated. But um, Jerry, I know you're, you look like you're, you have the face on, like you're about to jump in. So go for it. Well, look, I mean, we, I think we make a very strong case in the, in the book that the, the way that the U S and NATO clearly looked like they were in a total shambles at the end of, the Afghanistan evacuation. I mean, 20 years of war and the Taliban is back in charge. Um, Americans are left behind, tens of thousands of Afghans left behind. The 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 US and NATO looking weak. And Vladimir Putin has wanted to do a full-scale invasion of Ukraine for a long time. Um, but uh it's pretty clear that this was the final push that he needed. This, he, he saw this as this is probably about as good of a moment as I'm ever going to get to do this. Right. And, and so he did it. And, you know, at the start of the war, first there was, there was no real attempt to deter Putin from doing this. We saw this with president Biden pull, you know, refusing to enforce the Nord Stream two sanctions um, all of this, all of this stuff. And Putin actually did sort of, it, it almost looked like a, a test run at the, at the start of Biden's presidency, he started this massive buildup actually right around the time that president Biden was making his withdrawal decision from Afghanistan. And, uh, the Russians eventually pulled back, but they had been building up tens and tens of thousands of troops on the Ukraine border. But Afghanistan happens and that 
Russian military buildup begins again immediately, immediately. Um, and so, we, you know, we make a very strong case that that w- the, the disaster in Afghanistan was likely the final push that Putin needed to do this. And at the start of the war, uh, the United States was encouraging Zelensky to do uh, what we, of course, condemned Ghani for doing, which was to flee the country. Um, the, the, the Biden administration did nothing in the lead up to the war to deter Russia or to start to get the Ukrainians the weapons that they might need to repel an invasion. Um, but Ukraine was, despite like predictions from people like General Milley, who thought that the Russians would take Ukraine in a week, um, Ukraine repelled the initial invasion. Um, of course, the question now is um, because of the slow way and the lack of deterrence, first off, the lack of deterrence allowing this war to happen, and then the slow U.S. response, now the question is whether Ukraine is going to be able to um, continue to survive a sort of meat grinder style war um, against the Russians. and. Uh, that's something that remains to be seen. But we make a very strong case that the total lack of deterrence by the Biden administration combined with the disaster in Afghanistan is likely what led to Putin finally making this decision to to launch, you know, this deadly and destructive war in Europe. Yeah. And, and you know, and I agree. Right. We un- we underestimated the strength of the Ukrainians and overestimated the strengths of the Russians at the outset. And I'm wondering, are we, did we, then we armed the Ukrainians, built brigades, trained them quickly. Are we now making the inverse mistake? We encouraged an offensive that the Ukrainians are now, it's, you know, look, there's still an opportunity for them to break through. I think as each day goes on, it's getting more and more difficult um, for them. I think, you know, you're starting to see the press wake up to this fact. You're starting to see U.S. officials question whether the Ukrainians... Did we overestimate with the Ukrainians' success last year in Kherson and and in um, Kharkiv with pushing back the Russians? Did we now overestimate the strength of the Ukrainians and provide them with all these weapons and encourage an offensive that they might not be able to sustain? And 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 we still hear that the Russian military is demoralized. It's broken. It doesn't have you know. And yet, what we're seeing now is a stalemate. So it, it's. And that's, you know, I think that to me could be even a bigger mistake than underestimating it at, at the outset, because we might be, this this could have been the Ukrainians only shot, should they have prepared for a defense, as opposed to go on the offense and grind down their military. I mean, look, we're going to find out the answer to these questions in the next couple of months. But we could have, we may have, and again, this is way off topic of, of, for generation jihad but we could have set the ukrainians up for for a major mistake or major failure in its ability to regain its territory by encouraging an offensive that may not have had good prospects to succeed you're starting to see military officials come out now and say well they're not executing the strategy we give them or sure they had enough right. weapons or they weren't trained enough and you know we're just doing artillery instead of combined arms and yeah yeah yeah, no, I, you know, I think it's actually a really, really good question. Uh, it's one I've kind of been thinking about a little bit recently because, 
I think there's 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 a, a natural tendency and a good hearted tendency in some ways to to want to kind of root for the best um and you know the they, they overcame insane odds uh, you know outside of kiev and in you know even just holding out Mariupol. um but at the same time i i think there is something to what you're what you're getting at in that um you know I, the russians could have a lot of their best fighters still out um but but that that's kind of not what the russian military is based off of it's an artillery based it's a landmine based it's a you know it's it's kind of more of a physical structure based type of of um of outfit and, and that that really doesn't work to your advantage when you're trying to attack entrenched russian positions right. um but I mean, i'm yeah. seeing the russians learn lessons i mean that's that's the thing they're adapting it's the russian way of war sucking at the beginning and you know learning the lessons and and no i'm not saying that they could go on the offense. i don't actually don't think that's likely but it looks like they might be able to hold what they got. And that would be a serious problem for the Ukrainians because they sold this as a retaking and Biden administration and the West has made this a, a ride or die situation, an existential threat. Um, and, you know, what happens to support here in the United States and Europe if this doesn't succeed? Yeah. Uh, and that, that kind of gets to the next thing I was, I was just going to say is that the part that concerns me a little bit is that, um, you know, there's a little bit of, of uh, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of, you know, supporting Ukraine to the, the maximum extent possible, uh, because what, what bleeds Russia is good for the U S to be honest. Um, but, um, uh, there's a little bit of like a fever in terms of, well, if they ask for it and they say they need it, we have to give it to them. And, um, my concern is that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're drawing pretty low on some, some of our own stocks, especially when it comes to 155s, especially when it comes to, you know, mortars and, and some of those other, you know, uh, munitions that, that can't be just recreated overnight. We're depleting our stockpiles not and, and not restocking, and, we're, and we're, we don't have enough production to both support the Ukrainians. And, you know, we're not making enough. And and these are, what happens if there's a war? What if China decides to well, invade Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, well, that, where that, are we there? If I was China, I would want to just prolong this as long as possible. Lead everything out of the stocks as, as much as you can. So there's, there's not a whole lot to give to Taiwan when the time comes. Well, and, you know, for me, I think that this all points to a theme that is in the final two chapters of our book about the importance of deterrence, the importance of deterring a war from happening to begin with. And, you know, the Russia and China chapters in our book that close it out, I think are connected for sure, because Putin, I believe, decided to invade Ukraine finally because of this assessment that he made about the United States and NATO and how we've looked after the debacle in Afghanistan and whether his assessment was right or not almost becomes beside the point once he launches that invasion 
And China has been key for Russia being able to conduct this war. And we talk about sort of the, what we call the Dragon Bear Alliance in the book, right? This, this military alliance, and I believe that, that it is an alliance between the Russians and the Chinese now. And so you have China backing Russia in this war, even if it pretends like it's not. <laughs> and this, this war um, on the European continent is killing tens of thousands of Ukrainians and is depleting U.S. stocks as Putin tries to conquer a country. And at the same time, China is itself preparing for a war with Taiwan. And we have an entire chapter in the book called The CCP and the Kabul Moment. And this is kind of how China responded to the debacle in Afghanistan is they call it the Kabul moment. So <clears throat> as the Taliban is taking over Afghanistan in the summer of 2021, China clearly saw where this was going and was getting very close to the Taliban. And once the Taliban took Kabul, Chinese government, Chinese state media was just ecstatic about this huge propaganda win for for China and the Chinese. So they call it the Kabul moment. And basically what China says is they direct this propaganda directly at Taiwan. And they say, look, you know, look at, look at Afghanistan right now. The Taliban is back in charge. The Taliban won. Look at all the tens of thousands of Afghan allies that the United States left behind. This is the fate that awaits you if you try to fight, this is what an alliance with the United States is worth. Nothing, right? This is what, this is the Chinese propaganda. And as, as James and I wrote the book and we're like, you know, this is an, a, a great title for this chapter, but I wonder how long is China going to continue to use this Kabul moment mantra, right? Well, here we go. The second anniversary of the Taliban taking Kabul and the Chinese Foreign Ministry is right back to it, talking about the Kabul moment, right? This is what America uh, is like. This is what Amer uh, an alliance with America is worth. And, you know, watch out Taiwan. And so all of this is ultimately connected because Biden failed in Afghanistan and 13 Americans were killed. The Taliban took over again. Our allies were abandoned. Americans were abandoned. Biden failed to deter Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He had a year to try to deter this invasion, and he, he did nothing to deter it. The debacle in Afghanistan helped encourage Russia to invade. You have China now backing this Russian invasion because I think China thinks it is very helpful for their purposes to have every the, the world focused on this brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine while China gets ready to invade Taiwan. And oh, by the way, the debacle in Afghanistan is good propaganda to try to break up this friendship and this, this alliance between the U.S. and Taiwan as we try to get Taiwan to get more serious about its own defenses to protect against a Chinese invasion. So, you know, this has just been a debacle from start to finish. And, you know, I just, I hope that 
everybody reads it because they can see, you can see how one thing leads to another and how one bad decision cascades into bigger and bigger disasters. James, any final thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I feel like we've taken up a whole lot of your time, but oh, no, absolutely gonna... not. It's my pleasure. No, well, then you know what? I'm going to take up one more minute of your time. <laughs> but uh, all, all I will say is that uh, we, um, this was a uh, definitely a, like a passion project for both of us. I call it a bizarre labor of love. So it, yes. that's you know what's uh, funny I, is I was about to call it a labor of love. Yeah, it's a bizarre one though. Trust me. Yeah, no kidding, right? Um, but. Uh, you know, we both take it very personally and um, we did our best to just tell the stories, uh, you know, not, not only the kind of the foreign policy background, but also of, um, you know, through the lens of the, the 18, 19, 20 year old uh, soldier or Marine at the gates. Uh, and uh, we just encourage everyone to, uh, and ask everyone to, to you know, pick up a copy and uh, and give it a read. James, Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today on Generation Jihad. It was a real pleasure. Um, everyone, again, I can't encourage you enough. Buy buy Cobble. It's and buy your uh, your bottle of favorite liquor. You're gonna need it. Um, I wish I had one when I when I started. Uh, certainly got there when I finished. But yeah, real pleasure to have you guys on. I wish you the best of luck with your book. Um, keep in touch. And uh, everyone, thanks again for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Uh, reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.